uh, find your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48. And uh, while you're uh, turning there and finding that first book of the Bible, have you uh, thought about what you want said about you when you're no longer here? Who do you want around you in your final hours? What do you want to say? What do you want said about you? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? I've been thinking about this in my own life. Not that you always want to think about like when you pass away, but uh, we don't know when that will ever be or how that will actually take place. But, um, you know, for me, I, I, I want to leave a legacy that Christ was truly at work in my life that uh, started kind of at ground zero, probably in my case, below ground zero. And through being united with Christ and growing in my relationship with him and learning to trust in him, that there was a confidence that came in my life, that confidence of trusting God. There was there was character like like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and and self-control that that came from came in my life as a result of my relationship with Christ. Um, One other thing that I'd like to have is I'd like to leave a legacy that. I touched a lot of lives, and God used me to influence people to walk with Christ. That I discipled them, I was a friend, I was a pastor, I was a father, I was a husband. And what about you? I think, I think we all would like to leave and have a lasting, strong, godly legacy. But, but what does that look like? What does that look like to have a legacy that lasts? And if you have questions about that, and maybe you haven't even considered that, uh, today is the day I'd like to reorient your thinking. I would like you to start thinking about your life in terms of what is it going to look like at the end in my final hours so that I know what I need to be doing in these present hours and in the days to come. And if you want to know what leaving a godly legacy looks like, you're going to want to lock in to Genesis chapter 48. Because once you start looking closely at this chapter, it becomes unforgettable. We've been looking at the life of Jacob and Joseph. And you'll remember that God brought this family that was completely fragmented with deceit and jealousy and favoritism and hatred. And through a series of events, including a famine, God brings this family together and he actually brings... Jacob and the brothers from the land of Canaan, where they're starving to death, he brings them to Egypt, where Joseph has actually become the prime minister. Joseph, their, their younger brother, had actually, who they had actually sold into slavery through an amazing series of events, becomes the prime minister, the chief executive guy in Egypt, and he actually provides for his family. And so we saw them being reunited. We saw that, that Pharaoh gave them the very best of the land, the Goshen. And when we come to Genesis chapter 48, we see Israel, or his name is Jacob. God gave him the name Israel. We see him in his final days, and we see him laying out some of his last words. And we find him in the scene when we come to Genesis 48. He's just about ready to die. He's very old. He's about 147. He's probably gasping for breath. He doesn't have a lot of strength. He knows that he's going to pass away. And what's going to happen is he's going to, the report is going to come to Joseph that your dad is very sick and he's about to die. And some of you have had this situation where you get that phone call and, hey, mom's not, mom's not doing well at all. You need to get here. 
or your dad or your grandfather, your grandmother, or someone that's close and significant to you. And you've, you've been in that scenario, in that situation where those were some of the last days, some of the last hours. And you had to have a conversation that has marked your life and is, is entrenched in your memory. And uh, some of you, though, have, have not had that experience. People just in your life that you love deeply, quickly, and suddenly just passed away. We're at a scenario here where Jacob is very sick. He's about to die. The word is out. And Joseph comes with the boys. And what we're going to do is I'm going to just kind of highlight as we go through this, how do you leave a legacy that lasts? How do you do it? And I'm going to just point out some, some key points in Israel's life or Jacob's life. Verse 1 in chapter 48, it says, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. And so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. So he hears he's sick, he comes with the boys, and then verse 2, when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel gathered or collected his strength, and he, and he sat up in the bed. I mean, can't you just see it? He's been laying there. He knows the time is short. He hears that Joseph, the son that he's loved for 22 years of his life, he thought that his son Joseph was dead. He lived with the lie that those brothers of his had told him, like, yeah, it looks like wild animals got to him, dead. Well, he, after being reunited, man, for 17 years, they've enjoyed close relationship. You know they made up for lost time. And here comes that scene. Jacob, he's in his bed. Joseph is here with his boys. And he gathers whatever strength he's got. And you can see him, just this old man, creaking, pushing, setting up in his bed. And then in verse 3, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. I mean, you know, when you come to these situations, it's, it's awkward. What, what, what do you say? It's kind of like, you know, if you make a, a visit to someone in the hospital and, you know, they're there and it's obviously they're not doing well. And, and you kind of you know, maybe you're not sure what to say. And so you're like, how are you? And like, uh. Not good. I'm bad. I'm in the hospital. Did you forget? Like, oh, yeah. And then you're like, well, uh, uh, what do you say now? Uh, what, do you, what are you thinking about? I, I think I'm dying. Okay. And so he's, you don't know really what to say. Well, let me just tell you. If you're in that situation, or perhaps log this away for your final hours, why don't you just start giving them the testimony about what God has done in your life? You see, that's what is taking place here. This final scene where Jacob and Joseph and his two boys are here, he just starts telling him about God's presence in his life. He says, Jacob, he speaks to Joseph, and Jacob just sees, he sees Joseph looking at him, he doesn't know what to say, and the very first word out of his mouth is, God Almighty, Elohim, the most powerful God, he appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. What he does is he tells him, I want you to know that God has been with me and he has blessed me with his presence. And not only does he talk about that God is with him and that God has blessed him with, the, with giving, be giving him the testimony of that God is with him. But I want you to notice then what he says in verse four. You see that not only does he know that God has been with him, but verse four, he knows and believes the promises that God has given him. And he said, verse 4, And he said to me, Behold, 
I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Not only does he give testimony that God has been with him and he blessed him, but he said, God told me and gave me his word that one day my descendants will have this land and they will be numerous. It was the same uh, promise that God had given Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to be a nation, a mighty people, and I'm going to bless you because you are going to be a blessing to the people you come in contact with. You see, Jacob at his deathbed, he believes the promises of God. And friends, if you want to leave a legacy a legacy that will have lasting impressions on multiple generations, you want to be one who is believing and trusting in the promises of God. You know, this book, the Bible, it's filled of promises, of facts, of truth that God has given us that we are to trust in completely. You know, God has promised, for instance, that he will give us his presence. He actually does so when we put our faith in Christ Jesus said, I'm with you always. I'm even with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. God also gives us a promise that we're forgiven. Now, let's, you know, we realize that that's why Christ died. He died on a cross to pay for the penalty for all of our sins. And we firmly believe that because he's paid and been the propitiation for our sins, we never would have to pay that penalty. But, you know, one question that seems to kind of plague believers is, okay, I believe that before I became a Christian, Christ paid for all my sins. But what about all the sins that I've committed after I put my faith in Christ? What what happens there? I mean, he, he paid for it back then, but you know what? Jesus said he had paid for them all. In fact, you might want to remember this verse in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess and agree with God, you know what I just did back there or said or thought? Lord, I agree with you. That is wrong and not in keeping with your holiness. I agree and I confess it. And I know by the basis of what you said that I'm forgiven. I believe. You know, God has told us there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. No tribulation, no problem, no famine, no war. No other person can ever separate us from the love that we have in Christ. We are always with him. He, you know what else? God has promised that, promised that we'll have eternity with him. He has also said that he's going to uphold justice. He has promised that he will reward your faithfulness. And if you want to leave a legacy, friends, a legacy for your kids, perhaps your nieces or nephews, your great-grandkids, be a person that truly believes the promises of God and let people know. That's what Jacob is doing here. He believes that God has been with him. He believes his presence has been with him. He believes the promises. And let me show you the third thing he does. He, he is going to bless the people in our, his life. Now, when we talk about blessing people, and especially at the end of life, generally we think of like inheritance, and that kind of gets down to like materials, uh, material wealth, financial wealth, that we're going to leave some sort of legacy. And so oftentimes it's thought of like, well, you just leave some money or some stuff for some people or a boat or something like that. Like you've got $500 left. You spent it all. You were very successful and just going through all your money. And between your six kids, they're going to divide up that $500, right? And you, we kind of think of it in terms like, well, at the end of my life, I'm going to bless my family or my kids with whatever financial resources I have left over. And in a way, Jacob is going to do that. 
Jacob is actually going to bless his family by letting them share in the benefits that are going to come. And so what happens? He's got these two boys and he says, verse five, he says, now your two sons who were born in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Okay, Jacob has 12 sons. Okay, but what's going to happen is he is going to, because Reuben has forfeited the right of the firstborn, the firstborn would get a double portion, but because Reuben had committed such a heinous sin, he actually had an immoral relationship with one of Jacob's wives, he, he lost the privilege of being the firstborn. And so what Jacob is doing is he's giving that privilege, the right of the firstborn, to Joseph, who would receive a double inheritance. That's how it always worked. The firstborn was supposed to get a kind of a double inheritance. And the idea was that he would take care of all the family, like uh, if there was like a mother that was left or there was uh, sisters that had never married. It was his responsibility not only to care for his family, but the extended family. And so with great privilege came additional resources. And so that's kind of what's happening here. He says, I'm going to give it to you, Joseph, but I'm going to give it to your two sons. They are going to be equal with your brothers. And that's what happens here. He says, they're going to be to me like Reuben and Simeon. I'm adopting them as like my own sons. He says, verse 6, but your offspring that you have, have, have been born after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. He is so certain of the promise that they're going to go into this land that he knows that when they do, these 12 boys are going to be kind of seen as the founding of the tribes. And so he says, I'm giving them each an equal inheritance with your own brothers. And he's doing that because he's dividing Joseph's Joseph's inheritance where he would receive twice as much. And so he says, those two boys, they are mine. And then he says in verse 7, now as for me, when I came from Padan, and it's like you can see at the very end of his life, He starts reminiscing about the significant events that take place. And he references Rachel. You see that in verse 7? Rachel died. Rachel is Joseph's mother and Benjamin's mother. And he obviously loves Rachel deeply because he's recounting her in the situation. And he's also telling him, listen, your mom, your boy's grandmother, I loved her tremendously. And he says, to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. I loved your mom. Let me just tell you something, guys. When, when your kids know that you love your, uh, their mother, what it does is it puts in their life like a rock. It gives them stability. It lets them know you're a man of depth and commitment. And so he tells them, I, I loved your mother, and I had to bury her. And so he's just recounting this great depth of love that he has. But what he's doing here is he's setting up a scenario where he's going to give benefits to these boys. But there's something else that he's going to do. And far more importantly than you giving $300 to each one of your kids when you die, okay, is for you to bless them with the reality that God has been at work in your life and to bless them with that kind of testimony. And so he says, verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, well, they are my sons 
whom God has given me here. So you can see that he's old. He's so old, like his eyesight is going. And so he said to them, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel, verse 10, were so dim that from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and he embraced them. Man, this is an amazing scene. And I I want you to pay close attention to this because this is probably one of the most tender scenes in all of Scripture. He's he he loves these boys and he asks, who are these? And, you know, what the response is he said, these are these are children that God gave me. The boys are standing right there. The boys hear this. Don't tell your kids like, well, a stork kind of dropped you off at my doorstep. OK, uh, that's not true. That's crazy. What you want them to know is that you understand that your kids are a gift from God. And that's what he tells him here. These are those. These are sons that God has given me. And so he says, bring them here. Bring them to me. I want to talk with them. Now, for you dads and grandpas, uh, you want to do this all the time. Don't just think at the end of your life that you're going to perhaps be in a situation where you're going to come up with some great eloquent speech. Then you're going to tell them about Jesus and then you're going to give them some instruction for life. And then you're going to really bless them in such a way that it'll be really memorable. No, we want to have this as a pattern throughout all of life. This isn't the first time that Joseph and Jacob and his sons actually prayed together, but it was going to be the last time. And so he, he says, bring them to me. And he actually physically touches them. There, this is how you become a spiritual leader in your home. You love your kids. You love your grandkids. You're willing to touch them. You're willing to show that you care for them. You embrace them. And so that's what's taking place here. He says, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And so verse 10, he says, you know, I, I, I can hardly see. The, my eyes are dim. And then Joseph brought him close and, and he kissed them and he embraced them. We don't know if he kissed them on the forehead or on the cheek. That really doesn't matter. What's important here is you see that he's not afraid to express how much he loves these boys. And so you want to take a mental note of that. If you want to leave a legacy that lasts, you've got to be able to and willing to touch someone. Let them know that you love them. Brace them. Kiss them. And so Israel said to Joseph, verse 11, You know what? I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. I, I never thought I would ever get to be able to do this. Now, you're going like, Phew. man, what you're talking about, like going and reaching out and touching your kids, hugging them. I didn't come from a home like that. My dad never did anything like that. My, my grandfather never, ever extended that kind of love. We, we didn't even talk about those things. And you might be sitting there going, That's, that is the reality How in the world would I ever start something or do something like that? Friends, you can. Let it start with you. If you want to leave a legacy that lasts, there's going to be after decisions that have been made that maybe are going to be different than how you experienced life and how others treated you like your dad or your grandfather. But you realize, I'm going to start a legacy that lasts and it's going to be new and I'm I'm willing to do something different. And, you know, it'll be awkward, okay? I didn't come from a home that did a lot of physical affection, uh, a home that we said things like, you know, I love you, things like that. Those were, that was all kind of foreign territory. And it, I, I'll tell you, it is awkward when you're trying to do it. It's kind of like riding a bike, learning how to ride a bike. Do you remember when you learned how to ride a bike? There were some wrecks, right? 
And then there were some times where it was just kind of wobbly. But, you know, eventually, after about six months, right, you got it. Now, some of you are faster, but you got it and you learned how to ride your bike. Well, learning how to show and express love to the people that are in your life, it's like that. At first, it'll seem awkward, a little, a little tense. This is different. But, you know, establishing those patterns, eventually it becomes natural. It becomes a part of your life. Well, these were patterns in, obviously, Jacob's life of doing such things. And, by the way, whether you're six years old or 20 year old, every guy wants to be blessed by his dad, by his grandfather, by a significant man in his life. And what Jacob is doing here, he's like, hey, you're my boys. I love you. You mean so much to me. He's got Joseph up there, and he's like, man, I am proud of you. You have done a fine job with these boys. You know, when, as far as, like, touching goes in our culture, oftentimes the only way a guy ever gets any sort of physical touch is if he gets in a fight, like through violence. Like, hey, some guy hit me today. I got touched today, okay? Guys, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. You see, when God is our shepherd, when we're united with Christ, we can live differently. We can experience life differently, and we can express love differently. And so we see here that this is what's taking place here. We find that Jacob, Joseph are gathered. Jacob is extending his love. And so, verse 12, Then Joseph took them from his knees, and he bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left. Okay, what's happening here is he knows that his dad is going to bless these two boys. And so he wants the older to get the... The, the, the top blessing, that's going to be Manasseh, and Ephraim, he's the second. So he puts him in a situation where the left hand is going to the right son, the right is going to the right one. And then, verse 14, Israel, Jacob, throws him for a huge curve. He stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. Whoops, right hand's supposed to go on the oldest son. He does this. Joseph sees this, and then he, when the younger one approached, his left hand, see that verse 14, on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn, and then it said. You know what this reminds us, like Genesis 27. Remember Jacob actually tricked his father? His father was blind, couldn't see, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the older brother. I'm Esau, and he was lying. He had him put these little hairy garments on. He put some stuff to make him smell bad, okay? I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm Esau. And he tricked his, his dad to get the blessing. Here Jacob fully knows what he's doing. He is intending to bless these boys this way. Joseph is, is learning like, we, like so many others. God's ways are not our ways. And God sometimes works in some very unexpected ways. In fact, this is a fourth time it's happened. Like Isaac was younger, but Isaac gets blessed over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over Reuben. And here now Ephraim over Manasseh. And so he lays his hands on these boys, and can't you just see it? This guy, he says, you know, I never thought that I'd even see your face, and now I get to see your boys. He's crying. He's got tears that are coming down his shirt. He is touching these boys. He's laid his hands on them. And I tell you, there is something very powerful when someone significant in your life prays for you. Uh, It was about 10 years ago, this month. I had perhaps the event that uh, where somebody or some people prayed for me that I will never forget. It's probably the most significant time of prayer I've had in my life. It was, uh, I had actually been commissioned to come to Fellowship Bible Church, having left Beaverton, Oregon. It's my home sending church. And I had a message. It was a commissioning message. 
uh, given by the senior pastor, a very dear friend of mine, to do one thing, to preach the word. Second Timothy 4.2. I got it. They had to keep it simple for me. Three words. Preach the word. Okay? Got it. And at the end, uh, they had me come forward up on these steps here and, and the elders of the church and these different pastors and significant people, they all came and they, and they, they put their hands like on my back and on my neck and hopefully it wasn't going to squeeze my neck too hard or anything like that. And, they, and, then, and then they prayed for me and commissioned me. And it was like electric. I mean, it was so powerful to be prayed for. In fact, by the, when, that, when they finished, I, I was, emotionally, I, I just couldn't control it. I, I'm generally in pretty good control of my emotions, but I mean, man, just the tears just started flowing. And I was like, well, something so significant is happening in my life. That's what's happening here. These boys are perhaps experiencing the most significant event of their life. Their grandfather is be is blessing them and so he's blessing them and he's blessing joseph in verse 15 he blessed joseph and said the god before whom my fathers abraham and isaac walked the god who's been the shepherd all my life to this day what he's doing is he's telling him i want you to know the difference in my life god has been my shepherd What he's doing is he's giving testimony. He's telling them about the fact that God has been the one who's cared for me, corrected me, supported me, strengthened me all of my life. He has been the shepherd all of my life to this day. You know, this is kind of interesting because remember when Joseph brings Jacob, his father, to Pharaoh? Uh, This is about 17 years ago. And remember what what did Jacob tell Pharaoh? Do you remember what he said? He said, hey, life has been great so far. Uh, No, he said... Uh, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. And you think about it. What changed? This man is an old man. He becomes even an older man. What changed in his life? You know what I think happened is that, you see, whatever or whoever you're looking at, what you're focusing on, that shapes how you see all of your life. And I think that even in the final years of his life, we see Jacob still growing and he's focused on God. And the reason that he can see God's goodness in his life is because he knows God as the shepherd of his life. He's seen God care for him, provide for him, correct him, strengthen him. And he says, verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. This is be speaking of like the angel of the Lord. He's the one who saved me and rescued me. He says, bless the lads and may my name live on in them. I want my name to be carried out through them. And, my, and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He's blessing them. He's saying, God has been with me. He has been my shepherd. And I want my name to continue through them and in them. You know, some of you are perhaps maybe on your final lap. Have you written down the testimony of God's faithfulness in your life? Have you have is there maybe a video that you've made or maybe you put it on a tape recorder where you have spoken of what God has done in your life and how he has shepherded you and cared for you. That's what it's recorded right here. In fact, it's recorded for all time. The family of Israel could always go back and see the testimony of Jacob. God has been the shepherd of his life. You want to write it down. Maybe you need a project for this summer. Why don't you write it down for your kids, your grandkids, and for successive generations how God has shepherded your life and what is the story of God's grace in you? 
Well, that's what we find here. Well, when we come to verse 17, well, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. He's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. You've got it wrong. You, you can't see. Somehow you made an error. And, and what he's doing, he's kind of like thinking like, oh, man, my dad has mixed this up. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he, he thought I didn't get it right. It's kind of like um, I heard of this uh, man who's an elderly gentleman. He's driving down the interstate. Uh, he gets a phone call. And picks it up on his cell phone, and it's his wife. And he goes, Herman, Herman, I just heard on the news that there is a car that is going the wrong way on Interstate Interstate 35. Please be very careful. And Herman goes, well, hey, it's not one car. It's hundreds of them, okay? You know, it's it's kind of like... Maybe Joseph thinks that Jacob has kind of got it mixed up. It was one of those senior moments or something that happens every once in a while. And he says, no, no, that's not the case. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But verse 19, but his father refused and said, you know, I know, my son. I know. I know what I'm doing. He says, he also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. You know, it's very interesting when you see the blessing that has been given in the scriptures. Oftentimes it had prophetic significance. And that is the case here. Ephraim actually became much more significant and much larger and more powerful than Manasseh. So much so that in the prophets, when you read the prophets, they actually refer to the northern ten tribes. They actually sometimes refer to them as Ephraim because of the significance of this man and his generation and his tribe. But he says, you know, there's going to come a multitude of nations that are going to come from these descendants. And then he says, verse 20, he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. It's as if he's saying this. I think so much of you boys. I love you. I want you. I want successive generations. I want men to end up looking like you. And it's like when he's even saying this, he might even be looking at him like you, Ephraim, and you, Manasseh. I want people to be like you. And you know, this is, you know how powerful that is for some older guy to say something like that about you. Let's just uh, take a little time out here. You need to know that if you are an older guy, and, and you don't have to be even that old. You can be like 35, 40 and over. You have such an amazing ability to encourage and to promote health and godliness and growth and the lives of younger men. I mean, think of it. We have guys here, they have, they have a dad that bailed on them. Their grandfather never said anything like this. Perhaps they have really no Christian history in their past. They have, they're here, they're at fellowship, they're reading their Bible, they're trying to figure it out, they're holding down a job, they're trying to do good there, they perhaps have a family, and they have no one, no male of any significance that comes in, will put their hand on their shoulder or shake their hand and say, son, I just want you to know that you're doing a good job. I have got my eye on you. I want you to know I'm proud of you. I really see God's hand upon your life. Every guy wants it. Every guy desires to have someone come into their life to encourage them, someone they could talk with, someone that would pray for them, pray with them. And you have the ability and the power to do it. And this is kind of lost in our generation. 
Very few men see themselves in the role of a, a discipler or a mentor, a man to encourage and significant. We have become so focused on us. It's all about me. And, it, and we don't even really think about others. When you have the ability to be a true blessing to the people in your lives. Well, you know what? Jacob gets it. He understands that the younger generation is important. These young guys, they need it. And they soak it up. And that's what's taking place here. You see, men are built for dignity and courage and respect and valor and courage. And you know how they get it? It's like it's passed on from male to male. From a guy who is confident in God and is walking with Christ, who, who is learning and loving and proceeding and growing and maturing. And as he invests himself in the life of another, it's like masculinity is passed on. Boys become men. And I'll just tell you, at Fellowship, uh, I desire that our church would be known as a church where boys become men. I'd like you to talk on the street and wake up. It's like, there's something going on there. It must be in the water or something like that. But they go in boys, they come out men. But you know how that's going to happen? It's when the men actually intentionally involve themselves in the lives of others. That's how it's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of guys that don't even know what a man is. And I'll just tell you, a, a man of God is someone who's an authentic relationship with Christ. He genuinely knows Christ. He has a relationship with him. He's rejecting passivity. He's accepting responsibility. He's leading courageously. And he's looking for God's greater reward. And we all have this tendency to become passive. God wants us to take steps of responsibility. Be like Jacob. Leave a legacy that lasts. But if you're going to do that... You've got to touch people's lives physically, verbally, socially, emotionally, spiritually. That's what he's doing here. And he's saying, man, verse 20, may God make you, may God make people like Ephraim and Manasseh, like you boys. Man, when a guy hears something like that, it propels him into the future. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. There's one other thing that I want to point out here. He also points out that, listen, God's going to be with you. And then verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you. He's going to be with you. And he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Think of it. Think of how God has carried you, how he has provided for you. He's strengthened you. You know, it takes all the pressure off. We're so worried about our kids. What's going to happen? Our world is falling apart. All these things. Are we saddled with debt? You know, I, I mean, what's going to happen? Are we going to be invaded? Is there going to be a nuclear war? Is, this, is the sun going to collapse? I mean, is there going to be a comet that's going to strike the earth? And there's all these things that we could worry and fret about. What we need to know is the same God who has carried us through in this life and has always been faithful and been our shepherd, he's going to be faithful to our kids as well. And it takes all the fear away. And nothing is more important to pass on to your family than this. The confident expectation that God will be with you. Don't be wrapped up like, oh, I just got to give my kids a lot of money. Frankly, that can wreck a lot of folks. What you want to pass on, pass on this, a legacy that God has been with me and he will be with you. And that's what he tells him in verse 21. He also says, In verse 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. I 
I give it to you. I'm giving you a double portion, Joseph. And so, what do you want to be uh, thinking about in your final hours? Who do you want there? Who, honestly, do you want around you? What are you going to pass on to them? What have you passed on to them? What are you presently passing on to them? Now, let me ask you, do you really want fruit at the end? I think all of us would say, absolutely. I want fruit in my life. How is that produced? How are you going to leave a legacy of godliness that God has been your shepherd? What, what does that look like? You know, well, let me give you a verse that's very familiar. We know, and Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, that I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to bear fruit, it's found in actually having a relationship with Christ. Now, we know that verse, we believe it, and it's absolutely true. But do you know that Jesus said something in verse 2 that we oftentimes, we don't really talk about. And we would, we'd almost like to forget it and just move on to verse 5. But Jesus said this in John 15, verse 2. He said this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Dead branches, they've got to go. Whoosh, they're off. He, says, but he said this, but every branch that bears fruit, do you know what he does to it? He prunes it so it may bear more fruit. And I want you to understand why you and I have struggles, disappointments, heartaches in our life. It's part of God's pruning. He cuts. Everyone wants fruit. No one wants pruning. I mean, but for pruning for us, it's failure, it's hardship, it's loss, it's discipline, it's pain, it's struggle, it's sickness, it's suffering. Pruning hurts. I mean, have you ever seen a tree that's been pruned? You get an arborist, you hire him and say, you know, he comes out. And you know what he does? He climbs up in that tree. He starts just taking out these huge branches. And he just kind of cuts that thing down where it looks like just like a big log that's sticking up and maybe a branch or two going out there. And you look at it like, whoa, I hired you to make my tree fruitful. And you killed it. I'm not paying you. You know, I'm like, no, no, no. You see, that arborist, he knows something about trees and the importance of pruning. Yeah, it looks like that tree's been killed. But in actuality, what's happened is that that tree has been traumatized. And that pruning, what happens is it stimulates those roots. And those roots start diving in and digging in deeper and they're drawing in nutrients. And from that experience, that tree then starts branching out with healthy branches that bear good fruit. And friends, Jesus told us this is how it is. If God is going to bear fruit in our life, he's got to prune us. There's cutting. It hurts. It looks like life is broken down. You may even feel like I'm dying in this experience. But this is what happened in Jacob's life. Remember how we've been kind of going through it and we can actually see parts of it as we've been tracing with Joseph? Do you know what's happened? He's been pruned. Jacob, uh, he lied. He had run from his brother. So he goes up and he hangs out with Uncle Laban all the way up in Haran area. And, and how fun was that? You know, Uncle Laban was wonderful, right? He just made life totally pleasant. Absolutely not. It was just 14 years of sheer misery with Uncle Laban. And he played tricks on him and, and bad ones at that. And then remember, uh, for Jacob, when he comes back, uh, his, his daughter Dinah was raped. He had brothers that were so wicked they wanted to kill Joseph. He lost Joseph. He thought he was dead. He had a brother. He had a son, uh, Judah, that was so bad that, that, I mean, he was immoral. 
Judah actually runs and just kind of hangs out with the Canaanites. Judah's first two boys were so wicked, God just said, that's it, and he kills them. You have, you have in the life of Jacob, you had to go through a famine. He had to leave the promised land. All of these events, like in our life, they hurt us. They were painful. They caused tears. But you know what? It was pruning. And it was from this pruning that you know what happened? God bore fruit. And that's what God does in our life. You see, through our difficulties, hard days, maybe you've had some hard days, maybe this has been a hard weekend, God is pruning. He's cutting. But what it does is it stimulates life and growth. And when we grow, we bear fruit. And you know, you see, the difference in Jacob's life, and this is what I don't want you to miss, is that God is his shepherd. And because God is his shepherd, he is able to bear great fruit. He can believe God's promises. He can be a blessing to people. And if you want God as your shepherd, then you want Jesus Christ as your Lord. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. I love you tremendously. And he died so that we might live through him. It's by living through him, understanding, pruning, and seeing God as our shepherd, we bear much fruit in our life. We can believe his promises. We can be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you with uh, these dear people of fellowship. And Lord, you know all about us. You know the difficulties we face, some of which we've imposed upon ourselves. Heartache, hardship. And yet, Lord, we have found in your word that we can leave a legacy, a legacy that truly lasts and has impressions that speaks of your goodness and your grace in our life, even through the difficulties. And so, Father, I ask that for all of us, we would truly be looking to you as our shepherd. Our confidence would not be in our circumstances, but in your son, Jesus Christ. And would you bear much fruit through our lives? Help us to understand pruning and difficulty and help us to be able to give a testimony to others that you're the shepherd of our life. You're the one who has redeemed our lives from all evil. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.